welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. This is Kathy. I'm your host. And as always, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. And if this is your first time listening, you can find this podcast from on these platforms, podbean.com, iTunes, Facebook, and Spotify at All Things Erie from Erie PA. We're also on Twitter at All Things Erie from Erie PA and Instagram at Kathy, B-R-D-L-Y. And yes, I know that's a mouthful. Um, I hope everybody is doing well and y'all have been able to find things to do. I've recently had to take my plants outdoors and that did not go well. Uh, the weather is starting to look up. April is kind of hit and miss in this area, but keeping my fingers crossed, it has been very nice. Two more weeks, our pool is going to be open. I'm just hoping that the weather is going to be improving. We've had some 60 degree days, which has been great. Today they're calling for some rain, but hey, it's great for the garden. That's what I'm hoping for. In this episode, we're going to talk about Lavina Fisher and her husband, John Fisher. And this is episode uh, 28. When I was doing this episode, I was going to try and stick with more of Lavina Fisher, but it was impossible without having John in it. As we go through this, you'll see why. Honestly, who was Lavina and John Fisher. You're going to find out, like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of information about Lavina Fisher. We honest, we actually know more about her husband. And, and the reason is, and it's not uncommon, that back in the day, when people were born, the, your names were written down in Bibles, and it was just passed down in families. John Fisher, his name is written down. If if the names weren't written down in Bibles, your names, if it was registered, you were, you were up there. For John Fisher, we know that he, in 1791, he's born to James and Esther Fisher, and he was the fourth child of that family. As far as we know, Lavina Fisher was born in approximately 1793, and that is pretty much common through all the research that we've done. And that's all we know about Lavina Fisher, that she was in Charleston, South Carolina. And then the next thing that we know about her is that she marries John Fisher and that she's beautiful. That's all we know about her. Once John and Lavina were married, they made their living operating a hotel called Six Mile Wayfarer House, which is outside of South Carolina during the 1800s. And at this point, this is where fact and legend twist together. It was said that Lavina would use her beauty to lure men to the inn, and with her charm, she would chat them up and serve the men tea laced with poison. And and as she was chatting and up, chatting them up, uh, she would gauge to see if they had money or not. And those that had the money, 
they would never see the light of day again. Once they had been shown to their room, the poison would have taken effect and the men would have been on the bed and Lavina would have pulled a lever that would dump the bodies into the basement where John Fisher would, and according to some research, chop them into little pieces to get rid of them. In another version, it was, it was despite the fact that Lavina was a married woman, she would lure the men to take them to bed and she would crush their heads with her thighs. I don't know about you, but for someone to do that, she would have had some muscular thighs. And I, I just, how? How would she have crushed their heads with her thighs? I just, I read that and I was like, who the hell would have made that up? Seriously, who would have helped, who would have made that shit up? And, but then again, you would have had someone going out there. I'd do that shit, not do that to someone else, but you would have had guys out there going, I, that would be the way I'd want to go. It's just stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. Then there is the story about how they're, how they were caught because men that were coming up missing in the general area and Because of this, and they were men who had money, the locals had decided to gather up a group of vigilantes who then went to the Fishers in February of the year 1819 to stop that type of activity that they thought was occurring there. Though it's not known what they may have said or done, but it was obviously they were satisfied with how they had handled it and They had returned to Charleston, but they had left one man by the name of David Ross to stand watch in that particular area. Early the next morning, and this is according to David Ross, he was attacked by two men and then dragged before a group of another group of men, along with the beautiful Lavina Fisher, whom he had looked to for help, but instead he was shocked to find that she had choked, she started to choke him and smash his head through a window. But somehow Ross was able to escape and alert authorities. Was it possible that Ross was in on the plot to discredit the Fishers? This is a question that I have. Or was he really attacked, but not by by those of whom he believed it was or told it was? And you'll learn why I question this, because nearly at the same time that all of that was going on, there was a man named John Peoples that had been traveling from Georgia to Charleston, and he was tired from his long trip, so he had stopped at the Six Mile House to see if they had a room, which he was warmly greeted by the beautiful Lavina, who had informed him at first, no, sorry, we don't have a room available, but invited him in for tea and a meal. She was ever the good hostess. It was said that her company was so pleasant that peoples ignored Lavina's husband's odd glances at him and chatted with her, and he had answered every one of her questions. But at one point, Lavina excused herself from the table for just a moment. Now, I want you to remember this story because she only excused herself for just a slight moment. 
Now, like I said, I want you to remember that she only stepped out for a moment. Lavina then returned with some tea and some good news. A room had suddenly become available if John still wanted it. He then accepted the tea. He accepted that Lavina uh, had poured him the cup of tea. Like I said, I wanted you to remember that while they were talking, she only stepped out of the room for a moment because if this was going on around the same time, how would have Lavina been able to be in two places at once? Even if she did leave at one point, because according to Peebles himself, it was only a short time, just long enough to make tea maybe. However, if Lavina had stepped out to take care of some business, surely Peebles would have heard the commotion, maybe, and when Lavina returned, she would have looked distressed or her appearance would have definitely been disheveled. She would have been out of some kind of sorts, maybe. But her appearance would have been different, especially if she would have put somebody's head through a window. She would have had cuts on her hand. She would have been different. Getting back to the people story, John didn't like tea, but he didn't want to seem impolite southern gentleman but instead of refusing it or leaving it untouched like a gentleman he poured it out when she wasn't looking but I would like to know where he poured it at where she wouldn't have noticed or even where John wouldn't have noticed it now afterwards Lavina showed Peebles to his room and then Peebles started to begin to wonder why Lavina had asked him so many questions and why was her husband staring at him all evening? And people started to become uncomfortable with all the information that he had provided. And then he wondered if he himself had become a target for robbery. He thought he had, okay, maybe I gave out too much information. So I'm going to feel safer if I would sleep in the chair by the door and not in the bed so he had dozed off all of a sudden he was awakened by a loud noise and he sat up looked around and that's when he realized that the bed that he should have been in had disappeared into a deep hole beneath the floor and John quickly looked around for an escape and when I say John I mean John Peoples that's when he jumped out the window, got on his horse, and fled to the authorities in Charleston. So not only was John Peebles escaping away from the Fishers around a little later, but so had Ross, according to which time when they got there to Charleston, they don't say in any of the research that I've read. All the stories say about the same information. And this is, and, and like I said, this is about the story legend goes for all of them. Like I said, keep in, keep in mind that both of these supposedly were going on at the same time, with the exception of when John Peebles was supposedly to fall through the floor. And this is why I question why Peebles wouldn't have caught on to what, what would have been going on 
or to the fact that when Lavina left and came back, if her appearance would have been different, especially if she was the one who had put Ross's head through a window. You know, she could have or would have had the cuts or abrasions on her hands from the fight and the subsequent head going through the window. Police then arrested John and Lavina Fisher, as well as two men they had been operating with. The six-mile Wayfair house was thoroughly searched and the grounds dug up, and they found it filled and hidden with passages, and the sheriff reportedly found items that could be traced to dozens of travelers, a tea laced with an herb that could have put someone to sleep for hours, and a mechanism that could be triggered to open the floorboards beneath the bed in the and in the basement as many as a hundred sets of remains. Funny, it says that an herb that can put someone to sleep for hours, not kill or poison them. So was Lavina giving her guests valerian to put them to sleep so they could rob them? The Fishers pled not guilty, but were ordered to stay in jail until their trial. But in the meantime, their co-conspirators were released on bail. And in their May trial, the jury didn't agree with their innocent plea. And they found them guilty of multiple robberies and murders. And they were sentenced to hang. They were given time to appeal their conviction. Why would they allow the co-conspirators out on bail? They could have easily left town, start a new life, and leave John and Lavina holding the bag for all the charges. And during that wait, John and Lavina occupied themselves by making a plan to escape. They were housed together in a jail that was not heavily guarded, and so they began to make a rope from jail linens. And on September 13th, they put their plan into place, and they used that rope to drop down to the ground, which John made it out, but the rope broke leaving Lavina trapped in the sail. And John, he loved his wife, and he wasn't willing to go without his wife. So he returned to the jail, and both of them were kept under a much tighter security. That's got to say something about how much he loved his wife. And if they were killers, why wouldn't he have left? He had to have had some kind of empathy, and most killers don't have empathy. So with being under tighter security, they now have to wait for their day in court, and that didn't come until February of 1820 in the Constitutional Court, which rejected John and Lavinia's appeal, and the execution was scheduled for later that month. And in the meantime, a local minister named Reverend Richard Furman was sent for counsel to both John and Lavinia if they so wished. John, he spoke freely to Furman and is said to have begged the priest to save his soul, if not his life. But it's said the cruel Lavinia wouldn't have anything to do with them. Sometimes this happens. Some come to grips with what, ha what is about to happen. Others do not. And on the morning of February 18th, 1820, both John and Lavinia Fisher were taken from the Charleston jail to be hanged on the gallows behind the building. 
John Fisher went quietly praying with a minister with whom he had had asked to read a letter before a crowd of some 2,000 people. And in this letter, John insisted on his innocence and had asked for mercy from those whom he had done wrong in the judicial process. John then begged to plead his case before the crowd. But before he was hanged, John asked for their forgiveness. Lavina, however, did not go so quietly. It is said that she had requested to wear her wedding dress and had refused to walk to the gallows. She had to be picked up and carried as she ranted and raved. Before the crowd, she continued to scream pointedly at the Charleston socialites, whom she blamed for encouraging this conviction. But before Lavinia's executioners could tighten the noose around her, ne- her neck, she yelled into the crowd, if you have a message you want to send to hell, give it to me. I'll carry it. And before they could finish the job, Lavinia jumped off the scaffold herself, not quite reaching the ground, which she dangled down to the crowd, into the crowd. And later on, onlookers would say that they never seen such a wicked stare or chilling sneer as that which was on the 27-year-old Lavinia's face. And this is the story of Lavinia and John Fisher. But again, how much of this is true and how much of it has been made up and thrown in with the legend of John and Lavinia Fisher? So let's take a look at some of the stories that were made up about the Fishers through the years. For example... Lavinia being the first female serial killer in America. While Lavinia Fisher is claimed to be the first female serial killer in the United States, that distinction goes more likely to Jane Topin. She confessed to 31 murders in 1901 and was found not guilty by reason of insanity. One of the things the records do agree on is the fact that John and Lavinia robbed many travelers. That's one thing that they do agree on. And highway robbery was a hanging offense. This also calls into question the fact that Lavinia wore her wedding dress to her execution and the fact that she jumped from the scaffold herself. Sometimes the legend is more fun to tell, and this one has lived on for a while in Charleston lore. The tales of David Ross and John Peoples both have some kernels of truth. However, their horrifying tales about the falling bed and hundreds of human bones found on the property both remain either unverifiable or stand in contradiction to official records. Basically, no bodies, no murders. The historical records do not show that hundreds of remains were found ever in John and Lavinia Fisher's basement. There were a couple bodies found that were dug up on the property, but nothing to tie them to the Fishers for sure. And according to records, they were never charged with murder. And as with any story over time, purportedly garish undertakings have become legend and they grow more colorful as storytellers multiplied their misdeeds. There is one account that was published 10 years after the hanging that says a great number of skeletons were found. At one point, it has grown to between 20 and 30 victims found in different states of decomposition. But actually, only two bodies were 
ever unearthed at the Six Mile House. A few days after, both John and Lavinia Fisher, along with their the others that had been arrested on February 18, 1819. And according to, there was one body of a white male that was found in a freshly dug grave, dug grave in the woods near the Six Mile House. The victim had been shot around the time the sheriff and a lynch mob raided the Six Mile House. He was buried next to the remains of a young African-American woman whose body was placed in an unmarked grave there two years earlier. The young African-American woman is the only skeleton that was ever found near the house. It is not known if the man buried there was a gang member who was shot during the raid or a victim of robbery. If all those bodies that they claim that John and Lavinia Fisher killed were there at the house, the reporters would have screamed it to the sky Somebody would have smelled the decaying flesh. I seriously, I, and even though people did not bathe a whole lot back then, the smell of decaying flesh would have been overpowering. It never happened, and the reason it never happened is because the story of the cellar full of corpse is like the oleander poison tea, which is fabrication and fiction, which is a quote from the book written by. Mr. Orr. No murders were ever attributed to the Fishers, and the two bodies that were found and never tied to the Fishers are not enough to fit the FBI serial killer definition of three or more people murdered over a period of more than 30 days, which is also according to Mr. Orr's book. And I must say, while doing research for this book, I couldn't quite remember the name of the herb that people used for sleep. So I had to look it up, which was the name valerian, which had been used for years. And I mean, a long, long time, years and years and years for a multitude of uses, not just sleep. And even though for this purpose that it was being used, then I started to look up the antidote for oleander. In today's medical treatment, there's a multitude of things that you do after the diagnose and the dose of the activated charcoal is given. But I could not find anything for back in that time period. So my point is that to kill somebody with oleander is a messy business. Then to add on to the fact that you're adding a dead body on top of it all, because the side effects to oleander is vomiting, diarrhea, it then it starts to slow down your organs and things like that. All of those messy things that go along with it, and then to add on to the de decaying flesh, the smells, they would have been overwhelming. And I'm not saying that everything back then would have been peaches and roses, but what oleander does to your body before you die would have been enough to put off the next traveler. And that's just me. And I know that they use pot potpourri to freshen things up and stuff like that, but that, that would have been a lot of potpourri to be using. And the fact that they say that Lavinia Fisher wore a white wedding dress to her execution because she believed that she was going to be married to the devil himself in hell immediately falling, following her hanging... Don't you think that would have been in the newspapers or in people's diaries? 
so it would have been recorded in a spectacular claim or belief by a condemned by a condemned prisoner. It was nowhere. Nobody reported that. The other one was also about Lavinia wearing her wedding dress to her execution to entice any man in the crowd to marry her because a married woman could not be executed. And the, and the reason for that was they were going to execute John first so she would be a widow. Why there would be, there would also be evidence for that. Also, there's, n- there's nothing to support this claim and why lawmakers would grant such an absurd exemption for this is, you know, just crazy. If somebody was sentenced to death, be they, be they male or female, you know, allowing a woman to simply marry in order to escape their sentence makes no sense whatsoever. Let's look at some of the truths about John and Lavinia Fisher. Since Lavinia Fisher did not murder anyone that we know of, she and she's hardly the serial killer that she was made out to be, and she's certainly not the first woman to be executed. And that claim goes to a woman named Jane Jane Champion, who was hanged for an unknown charge in 1632. Lavinia and John were never convicted of murdering anyone, much less 100 people. When they were hanged, it was not at a jail, and it was while wearing the traditional hanging outfit, not her wedding dress. The Fishers were the Fishers' home was burned to the ground with all their belongings almost as soon as they were arrested. So there's no way she could have said, "Hold on for a moment, time out. Let me go grab my wedding dress." I'm going to need that for, you know, when I go to get hanged. John Peoples was not a guest at the inn. He was a man who stopped to water his horse and was robbed in the process. Lavina did have an outburst, but she died having made her peace with her fate with God and was buried in a pauper cemetery, not in consecrated ground. And they have no way of knowing where Lavina and John are. The potter's field ceased to exist in 1825. So there's no way to know if their bodies were ever dug up and relocated. Or if even they were just covered up with buildings for the arsenal and military school or the medical university that finally took over that property. What we do know from the National Historic Registry is that the potter's field was located on Ashley Street. And in 1825, it became the federal arsenal, like I just said. There's no way to know where she's actually buried. But here's an article from that time period. And I'm going to read it word for word. The execution of John and Lavinia Fisher for highway robbery took place yesterday in the suburbs of the city, agreeably to their sentences. They were taken from the jail about a quarter before one o'clock in the carriage in which, besides the prisoners, was Reverend Reverend Dr. Furman, an, an officer of the police. They were guarded by the sheriff of the district with his assistance and in the small detachment of cavalry, arrived at the, at the fatal spot. Some time was spent in conversation and prayer. Fisher protested his innocence of the crime for which he was to die to the last, but admitted 
that he had lived a wicked and abandoned life. He met his fate with great firmness and expressed his obligations to the new sheriff for his kindness and humanity. His wife did not display so much of fortitude or resignation. She appeared to be impressed with a belief to the last moment that she would be pardoned. A little past two o'clock, the husband and wife embraced each other upon the platform for the last time in this world. When the fatal sign was given the drop fell, and they were launched into eternity. She died without a struggle or a groan, but it was some minutes before he expired and ceased to struggle. After hanging the usual time, their bodies were taken down and conveyed to Potter's Field, where they were interred. The concourse that attended and the execution was immense. May the awful example strike deep into their hearts, and may it have affected intend and may the effect intended by deterring others from pursuing those vicious paths which intended in infamy and death. So basically, it was a hanging that went by the book. There was no her wearing a wedding dress, her trying to get someone to marry her so she couldn't be hung because she's a newly married woman or anything like that. Like it said, John tried to plead his case. Hey, yes, I know I was a, I, I didn't lead the best life. I did what I could. And, and now I'm going to pay for my crime. And like I said before, the gentleman named Bruce Orr, now he, the book he wrote, Six Miles to Charleston, in some of the research that he did, it had mirrored some uh, research that another person had done. And what he found was pretty interesting. He had found that John's uncle had paid for two female slaves because in some of the other research found, Lavinia had made a statement about not hanging a white woman. And even though... That's not the case as we know, because the Salem witch trial, they were white women uh, with the, uh, with the exception of, uh, uh, tibia. It was, it was very interesting because in this research, he found that, like I said, John's uncle paid $700 for, for two female slaves and one who had very, uh, who had a very unusual name of Lavinia. So the question is, is Lavinia the same Lavinia that John married? And if so, was the question about, was she so, what was Lavinia so sure in her marriage to John that she felt that she was safe from everyone, all the rules from slavery and that that is a good question now to move forward and talk about where john and lavinia were kept the structure itself was built in 1738 and that particular property was used as a workhouse for runaway slaves and it was used as a makeshift hospital for paupers and the vagrants and beggars and the barred windows were not meant to keep out the cold or the heat, any insects or rodents. And 
people there were subjected to whippings, beatings, and any physical or sexual assaults. They were very common. There was a there was a debtors section, which those people that were in there for debts, they built coffins because so many people in there died. There was no running water. There were wood chips that were kept on the floor, which served not only as the bedding, but also as the toilet. And filth obviously was very common. The, cr- the criminals that were kept in there, they were housed before the old jail was even built. And though they would have kept them separate from non-offenders, punishments and executions, they took place at that particular location. Again, they would have faced the same whippings, brandings, torture, and they would have been deprived of food and water. For horse thieves, their ears would have been nailed to a post before they were finally sliced off. And for the worst offenders, they might have been burned at the stake, either that or hanged or drawn and quartered. That being said, that particular area, could you could just imagine the oppression you could probably feel in that particular area. And over the years, there were numerous structures that were built, demolished, and rebuilt. Finally, the jail... The jail itself was constructed in 1802, and it consisted of four stories, which topped with a two-story octagon tower. And there were changes that were made over the years, and expansions were made. And then in 1886, there was an earthquake that badly damaged the tower and the top story of the main building, and they were eventually removed. But... In the 137 years of that building being in operation, it not only served as a jail, but it also served as an asylum, which housed a variety of inmates that not only included John and Lavinia Fisher. In the early part of the 1800s, it, it housed high sea pirates and a man named Denmark Vesey. And this man, if you know any of history down in that area, he planned a slave revolt in 1822 to free black slaves. And he wanted them to assist in killing their owners. And they wanted to temporarily seize the city of Charleston before sailing away to Haiti. But before the Before this all happened, the plot was leaked and hundreds of blacks were arrested in this conspiracy. Now, in total, 67 men were convicted and 35 were hanged, including Denmark Vesey. Because of this, increased restrictions were placed on slaves and free blacks that that would come into port. And during the Civil War, both Confederate and federal prisoners were incarcerated in this particular prison. Even though the, this particular jail was only intended to hold around 128 prisoners, like everybody else knows, it usually ends up holding double or triple what it's supposed to hold. And it, it, at one point, it held up to 300 people. In some rooms, there were prisoners that were locked in cages, which were barely the size of a person's body. And with all of this, 
you know, disease, torture, and violence within the walls were rampant. And they estimate that 10,000 people died on the property during the time of its operation. And the jail itself, itself was finally closed in 1939. For the next 61 years, it sat abandoned. And then in in the year 2000, the American College of Building Arts bought the city jail building and they established a stabilization program. So today, the city jail is an official Save America's Treasures project. And they are taking, they're making efforts to restore and maintain the building. And it's an ongoing project. That being said, and we all know this happens and you hear about this a lot, any building or home that has had a lot of tragedy in it, if it's left alone, you you don't hear anything about it. But since people have been in there, they have been renovating, there have been report, reports of strange occurrences that only started when the restoration began in the year 2000. And one of the first reports was when a worker began finding footprints in the dust after the building had been locked off for months due to lead paint contamination. More and more anomalies began to occur as the preservation continued and then the building was open up for tours. Just like any scary movie, you don't go in there. If you know that stuff's going on, you don't go in there. As we're yelling at the TV and the young teenager hears the twig snap and you're like, don't go there, don't go there. Like we're yelling at the screen like, screen like she can hear us. There have also been several apparitions that have been reported by people, including several workers who saw the ghost of a jailer with a rifle on the third floor. This phantom was said to have passed through the bars heading towards them before it vanished. And others have reported seeing a black man in ragged clothing wandering aimlessly in the halls. And it's thought that it is the spirit of a former slave. And this man is seemingly unaware of the living or his surroundings. But the old jail's most famous ghost, which they say is that of the cruel killer Lavinia Fisher. And several people who have visited the historic building often claim to see the woman in her wedding dress described, describing it as being bright red and white, which, however, as we know, Lavinia would not have worn her wedding dress. She would have been wearing her white covering that and and that would that could be confused as one since it would have covered her dress that Lavinia would have worn to the ex block or that's that covering would have been what she had worn to to the uh, hanging and there have also been strange sounds that have been heard through the building including the hum of a dumbwaiter moving through floors even though that dumbwaiter has not been operational in years and alarms are said to have to go off randomly there other people have experienced physical things both visitors and employees have complained of a choking feeling and shortness of breath while on the main staircase others 
have reported being grabbed, pushed, touched, and scratched by something unseen. And there's a tour guide that tells a story of feeling a rope that wrapped around her ankle and a man in the basement that had his sunglasses and, and the story of a man in the basement that had his sunglasses knocked off by a violent unseen force. And there's other strange happenings that have allegedly occurred, like terrible odors that are so bad that it actually makes people sick and which... It could be the smell of what it smelled like back then. And you have to remember, we today shower and use soap, water, colognes, perfumes. and But back then, they were going to the bathroom on the floor. And they were living like that, not bathing and having to live in that existence for years and years and years. So that smell, that that smell that they are smelling could be what they as prisoners were smelling. There are also a number of tales that Lavinia also haunts the Unitarian Cemetery. And people also say that it's very unlikely since there was a Potter's Field Cemetery next to the jail at the time where most criminals were buried if their bodies were not claimed by family members. And also the church records have been searched, which that it indicates that it indicates that she was not buried there. But this tale has likely been perpetuated by tour guides and the tale being that Lavinia is haunting the Unitarian Cemetery. Because what sounds better, Lavinia Fisher haunts the graveyard since she wasn't given true justice in life? Or, hey, we have no idea where she's at. Would it be the potter's field? But the cemetery became the federal arsenal in 1825, then the Porter Military School in 1880. Then it became the Medical University of South Carolina in the 1960s. Which one flows better for you? For me, it's the first one. And unless you have stories from any of the buildings that were built over the cemetery. So after listening to this, do you think that either John or Lavinia killed several hundred people? No? Then that would certainly not make her the first female serial killer in America. But why do you think that they were set up on trumped-up charges in the first place? Did they rob people? Yes, absolutely. But think of how they were finally caught. There were two people that were able to come forward at almost the exact same time claiming that the Fishers and their quote-unquote gang had robbed them and Lavinia was involved. That in itself was, is suspicious. The Fishers were originally arrested and tried for assault with the intent to murder, but they were sentenced to hang for highway robbery, which was a completely different crime that they were charged with. And keep in mind, there were originally 12 people arrested with the Fishers, but the only other person that was punished along with the Fishers was the co-owner of the Six Mile House. Everyone else was let out on bail. What was it about that particular place? That's something to ponder. I hope you all enjoyed this story. 
If this is your first time listening, please go to these platforms, podbean.com, iTunes, Facebook, and Spotify to download the other episodes available. We're also on Twitter at all things Erie from Erie PA and Instagram. And Instagram is at Kathy B-R-D-L-Y. And please feel free to rate the episodes on both podbean.com and iTunes. Please stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kathy signing off.